Well, good morning, IBC family. May I be the first, probably not the first actually, but maybe one of many to say, Happy New Year. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> can tell everybody's real excited. <laughs> Woo! Happy New Year. Happy New Year. There we go. Now we're awake. I'm so glad. Well, as uh, Elder Dan uh, Weldon actually already kind of told you, uh, it is the first weekend of 2024, and we are also beginning a brand spanking new series through the book of Genesis. And uh, I can't think of a better uh, book to kind of embark on and journey through together than the book of Genesis. I've been reading and studying and and meeting about uh, this book for the past, well, about six months now. And sometimes I feel like I'm all the way back in elementary school again because uh, even though I've been through seminary, even though I grew up in Sunday school, even though I grew up in a very godly home, the fact is you start unpacking it and you're like, oh, there's so much to know and there's so little that I do know. Uh, But you know what? My goal, my intent, my prayer for us as we go through this series is to understand the importance of starting at the beginning. You might be wondering, does it really matter that you start at the beginning? And I think probably one of the best illustrations maybe to emphasize the importance of starting at the beginning is, well, maybe we could say it like this. If you were to show up in the middle of a movie that you had not yet seen prior to that movie, how well do you think you would be grasping the significance, the plot, the character development of that story through movie. I mean, you'd be going, you probably have a lot more questions than you would have answers, right? Or if you picked up a book and you just kind of opened it right down the middle, you would miss so much as far as the characters that were introduced and developed, uh, the plot lines, the, the, all the, the, the difficulty that's happening. That, you know, usually there's always this kind of uh, the struggle that's presented at the very beginning of every good story. And then, of course, there's the good, the good people and the bad people, the heroes, the villains. Everybody's introduced, and you walk in the middle of it, you're like, so what's going on here, and why is that person doing that to that other person, and how did they get on the island, and, and you have all these questions. However, and I just have to do this, we just came off the holiday season, and I have to throw one particular series under the bus, and that is the Hallmark movies. <laughs> you, can, you, you can be thoroughly confused with any other book or movie, but when you, when you think about a Hallmark movie, you can miss the majority of it <laughs> and walk in the end of it and know everything that's happened. In 30 seconds, I mean, I've walked in the middle of why Abby's watching the Hallmark movie and she's just grinning from ear to ear, maybe even crying, and I'm like, oh man, and I walk in and I was like, I can tell who's going to hook up with who. I can tell what the drama is, and I can tell how it's all going to end. Then I just walk back upstairs and I'm like, I can't do this. <laughs> but that being said, I mean, I'm not knocking all you Hallmark avid followers. Way to keep them in business um, this past year. But in general, I think you get my original point. It's incredibly difficult to clearly understand the depth of a plot or, or to uh, the characters of a story when you don't know or you don't understand how it all begins in the first place. And I believe that the same emphasis or principle is true when we approach Scripture. 
Yes, on the one hand, you can open the Scripture to any book of the Bible at any page of the Bible, and it will have some relevance. You'll be able to walk away with something that, uh, that touches your heart, that encourages you where it's needed, or, or convicts you where it's needed. There, even if you open to the book of Leviticus, there'll be something, if you turn the pages enough, There'll be something that you're able to walk away with and go, okay, yeah, God has spoken to me, even though I don't know the context, even though I haven't really taken the time to understand uh, everything from the very beginning. But on the other hand, I believe that you and I cannot grasp the depth of Scripture if we don't know or we don't fully understand how it all began in the first place. And that is why the book of Genesis is so important. Genesis literally means beginnings, the book of beginnings. You see, Genesis is so crucial to our, our perspective and our, and our view on life because it, it provides a foundation and it gives us details and instruction about life and reality. In fact, it is in the book of Genesis that a biblical worldview is established. Everybody has a worldview. The question for us is, is our worldview biblical? Everybody has an outlook on life. The question is, do you and I think biblically about all matters that pertain to life? And so questions like, how did everything come into existence in the first place? Dan already showed us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who's really in control of everything? Why is there evil in the world? What is sin? Is there any hope in light of evil's advancement? Does good ultimately overcome evil in the end? Is there any purpose in living? What is the meaning of life? What is marriage all about? And something that's very relevant in our current age and climate is gender fluid. Who decides what's morally good and morally evil? Am I accountable to myself or am I accountable to someone else? Where did all the languages and diverse people groups come from? All all these questions and many other questions like them are answered in God's revelation to us. All these questions and others are answered in the first book of the Bible, the book of of Genesis. And so we're going to launch this new series uh, through the book of Genesis so that we can better understand and adopt a biblical worldview. But before we, before we journey through this book passage by passage together, I first want to give us kind of an overview of the first 50 chapters of God's revelation to us. In a sense, I want us to give us, I want to give us kind of the, the 30,000 foot perspective, right? Kind of a big overview of what we're about to, to launch into. And then eventually we'll land the plane. I promise we'll land the plane today. Eventually we'll land the plane and we'll travel by bus or travel by foot, uh, through each passage. And this will take us, I don't even know if I want to say, because maybe that'll scare you. It's going to take us a couple years, actually. We're going to be traveling through this for a couple of years, all 50 chapters, but it's going to be rich, it's going to be thorough, it is going to be life-giving, and it's going to be very foundational to your biblical worldview. So you ready to go? You ready to do this? Okay, let's do this. Genesis. As I said, Genesis is the book of beginnings. 
Interestingly enough, Genesis is, is the, yes, the first book of the Bible, but it is also the second longest book of the Bible. That is, Psalms being the first longest book of the Bible. Genesis, just to give you some background information about it, is traditionally known as the first book of the Pentateuch. I'm going to say some language, but I'll make sure I define what I'm saying when I say it, right? Pentateuch can be split up into two sub-words. Penta, meaning five, right? Pentagon, Pentateuch. Penta, meaning five. And Tuch, meaning book or books. So the Pentateuch is the Hebrew name given to the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch represents, actually, actually all five books of the Pentateuch represents God's law, or what the Hebrew language refers to as the Torah. Now, it's interesting that the Pentateuch was originally one book. We have five books in our English translations, and of course, even, in the, even ancient Israel still had five books or five scrolls, but originally it was actually one book or one scroll, but the fact is, there was so much to say, it was actually just by structure and by ease, they actually split it up into five scrolls. But it, it is always considered to be one cohesive unit or one uh, book in the, in the mindset of the Hebrew people. There's a few questions that we need to ask, and therefore I will answer for us this morning just for the sake of clarity. First of all, who wrote Genesis? Who wrote Genesis? The short answer, I'm going to give you an answer, don't worry, you don't have to guess. We're not going to take a a show of hands here, but the short answer to who wrote Genesis is this, it is Moses. Moses is the person who wrote Genesis. And you might be wondering, do I know who Moses is? Most of us know who Moses is, but he's the one who led the people of Israel out of slavery in the land of Egypt and led them to the promised land, which is modern-day Canaan. Now, there's a lot of speculation, by, especially by secular scholars, as to how this could even be possible. How in the world could Moses be the one who authors the Pentateuch, especially even the book of Genesis, after all? The book of Gen- the stories that are found in Genesis happened long before Moses even existed. We're talking over a thousand years before Moses even existed. And so you might be wondering, how could Moses author something a thousand years ago? And, and he would have actually some the, the exact details of what actually transpired. What we must understand is that even Genesis 1 through 11, those 11 chapters were considered ancient history even to ancient Israel. And so Israel, when, when, when they're hearing it for the first time, Moses is referring to events that took place long ago, over a thousand years prior to their known existence at that time. But regardless of speculation... There is significant scripture and historical support for Moses being the author of Genesis. For example, the historian and gospel writer Luke, he refers to the the Pentateuch, the first five books, as the law of Moses. Or consider the other gospel writer John. He refers to uh, the, the law as given through Moses. The Apostle Paul refers to the Pentateuch as when Moses is read. Not when someone else, but when Moses is read. Even Jesus himself refers to the law, the first five books, as the book of Moses. 
And so while recent secular scholarship has introduced a little bit of doubt about Moses' authorship of, of Genesis, there are thousands of years and of documented support for Moses as being the author. So that's a long-winded answer of saying, who wrote Genesis? Moses did. That's how we can walk away from it. Another question that I want to ask and therefore answer for us is this, who was Moses writing to? Who was Moses writing to? Again, the short answer, and I'll elaborate just a little bit more on that. The short answer is this. Moses is writing to the people of Israel as a way of preparing them before they entered the land that was promised to Abraham and prepared for them. This is really the context of Genesis. This is the purpose of the entire law being written down. Because you see, before the Pentateuch even existed, God spoke to his people Israel through, guess what? Moses. He says, Moses, he was a prophet and he spoke on behalf of God to his people. But guess what? Moses did not live forever. Eventually Moses died. And before he died, guess what? God said, I'm going to prepare my people. I don't want them to be in the dark. I want them to know. I want to give them clear instruction. So Moses, write these things down. Write these things down so that my people will know what is true and what is right and what is godly. And so Moses wrote those things down. He wrote them as instructions clarification as to who, they, who the Israelites were in the first place, uh, especially in regards to their origins. We see that Moses helped them understand how they were to relate to God, especially how they were to worship God. We see that Moses instructed the people of Israel how they were to relate to one another and how they were to relate to other people groups. We see that in the, the law of Moses, the first five books, It was a warning of what would happen in their disobedience, as well as an encouragement of how God would bless them in their disobedience. But the point is this, Moses primarily was writing to the people of Israel. Now, you might ask this question, and maybe not, but I'll ask it for you anyways. Why in the world does this even matter? Why can't we just kind of give me the answer and I'll move on very quickly? Why make such a big deal about Moses writing to Israel primarily. Well, I think this, I want to just kind of take a step back just for a brief moment and help us understand how we are to approach the book of Genesis. In fact, all of Scripture for that matter. You see, what happens oftentimes, uh, and I don't know why we human beings do this, but we so quickly personalize Scripture as if God was writing directly to me about literally everything. And while on the one hand, the Spirit of God does speak to us directly through the Scriptures, we must have a a better or clear and more accurate understanding of the place of Scripture, meaning that God ultimately, uh, He speaks through His Word, but not everything is specifically has you in mind primarily. Now, you might be thinking, wait, what? What? What are you talking about? Hear me out. There's a quote that I came by, and, uh, and I've heard it many times or read it many times, but uh, something that I think we all need to kind of wrap our minds around that is help for us, helpful for us as we approach Scripture. And that is this. All Scripture is written for us, but not all Scripture is written to us. 
All Scripture is written for us, but not all Scripture is written to us. Listen to what Paul the Apostle says in 2 Timothy 3, a passage of Scripture that might be very familiar to you. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And what Paul is telling us is this, all Scripture has eternal value. All Scripture has eternal benefit for our lives. But he does not say that all Scripture is specifically written to you. You see, when the Holy Spirit inspired 40 different authors over a 1,500-year span of time, we must understand that God was writing to certain people in specific places at specific times in history for specific reasons. Therefore, we must, as good students of Scripture, uh, we, we must exercise caution before we too quickly jump in and identify some personal application for our, for our lives, especially when we jump into the book of Genesis. You see, the issue is not the trustworthiness of Scripture. The issue is the, the trustworthiness of our interpretation of Scripture. Scripture is inspired and infallible. Your interpretation is not. And therefore, we must approach it with uh, time-tested, here's the fancy term, hermeneutics, the way in which we interpret. We must approach it with some specific rules in mind. You see, all of us live in the 21st century Western context, and so we view everything, because guess what? You are a product of your culture, regardless of whether you think so or not, you are a product of your culture. We live in the 21st Western century, uh, Western context, and so we all have a bias. We all view the world. We all see things through a certain lens. But what, what we need to do, as much as we're able to do, and this is part of my role as a pastor, is to kind of is try to bring you to these places where you can start thinking and viewing the world like the, an Israelite would back in ancient Israel helping you understand how do they see the world? What was the context like? How do I understand the people and, and, and what they'd be feeling in this moment? What was, their, what was their history that would help them inform them? Like, for example, when we talk about Jonah and God says, hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh and go preach the gospel to those Ninevites. Isn't that great? And Jonah should be jumping up and down going, yeah, God wants to save the Ninevites, unless you know their history. Unless you know that the Ninevites were ruthless, cruel people that did the most heinous things to the people of Israel. They thought of ways to torture them. And so when God says, hey, Jonah, go to the Ninevites and, and, and preach the gospel because I want to I show them my grace, he's like, absolutely not. I want nothing to do. In fact, I don't want them to be saved. Why in the world, God, do you want to save them? Because he didn't understand that God's grace was sufficient and intended for all people, regardless of performance. So without going on too many rabbit trails here, it's important that we approach Genesis and all of Scripture for that matter as much as possible, understanding the context in which we're walking into. And I will do my best uh, as your pastor to unpack some of these details to help you kind of, since, enter into the context in which Genesis uh, uh, 
describes various stories and various people, and so that we walk away with a relevant application and a universal application for our lives. Now, what is the literary genre of Genesis? You might be one like, I don't even know what you just asked. What is the kind of literature that Genesis is written in? What I'm getting at is this. There's, there's poetry, there's history, there's narrative, there's science fiction, there's uh, biography. There's all kinds of different uh, of, of literature that we can read. And some of us have a, a propensity or an inclination for one over another one. But it's important that we understand what kind of literature is Genesis because here's the thing about any literary genre they all have their own rules. Every literary genre has its own rules in how you read it and especially how you interpret it. In other words, you cannot read poetry like a science book. Some of you have tried, and it's not so poetic. You can't read history like a science fiction book. So the question, and it still remains, what kind of literature is Genesis. It's actually a combination of many kinds of literature. There's poetry in there, but predominantly, Genesis is historical narrative. So let me just give you a couple background rules or kind of a grid to think about what historical narrative is like. First of all, we need to understand this. Uh, Genesis will not always be written in a linear or chronological order. Historical narrative does not mean anything has to be in absolute. There's going to be a lot of back and forth. Didn't, didn't Moses just talk about this, and all of a sudden we're back to this genealogy, and now all of a sudden we're over to here? It jumps all over the place. We also, historical narrative also means that the author, or Moses in this case, will circle back to important details about an event that was just mentioned. But the, one of the most crucial parts about historical narrative is this. Theology trumps chronology. Theology trumps chronology, meaning that the point of a passage is not bound by chronology, but by context. And as I already kind of mentioned before, by, by context, we're identifying the theological truths in the context of ancient Israel, not our 21st century Western mindset. We must ask, what it, what did it mean then? And then we're able to ask, after we answer that question, what does it mean for us today? Now the question I want to ask and answer is, why did Moses write Genesis? I already kind of answered that initially in the beginning a little bit, right? Moses is about ready to die, and God commissioned Moses to write the book of Genesis, really the entire law, the first five books, so that Israel would have instruction before entering into the promised land. But when we unpack Genesis here, we'll see that Genesis sets the stage for how deity and how humanity interacted or coexisted with one another. You see, the Bible is very much about God's relationship to humans as well as humanity's relationship to God. Genesis sets the stage for telling us the purpose of existing as human beings as well as our nature, both before Adam and Eve rebelled and after they rebelled. 
Genesis tells Israel how they came into existence. In other words, it tells Israel, hey, this is your family tree. This is kind of the first Ancestry.com that was was set up for them. Because ancient Israel, especially the new generation that was getting ready to enter the promised land, and all the other generation died off, they did not know their roots. They they have a very fuzzy understanding about how do we even come to being in the first place? What What is our identity really all about? This is what Genesis through Deuteronomy is seeking to inform them of. Genesis shows us Israel's place both on a global and redemptive scale. Genesis offers a message of hope for all people, a hope that began through the people of Israel, but was intended for all people. I can't think of a greater need that all people have than the promise of hope. You see, what Israel needed was what hope do we have as we enter the promised land? How then should I understand and view life and reality? How then should I view what matters most in life? And this is the, these are the answers that Genesis gives to us. So, before I wrap up our time, and you might be looking at the time going, this is the quickest sermon Aaron has ever preached. Don't get used to it. Um, but I want us to give us kind of just a quick structural overview. I'm giving you some background or preliminary information, but I also want to give us a, a kind of a structural overview of the first 50 chapters of, of Genesis, and then obviously we're going to be unpacking those in much more detail as we journey our way through this incredible first book of the Bible. As I said in the beginning, Genesis is 50 chapters long, but it can be divided into kind of two very obvious sections. And Genesis 1 through 11 really looks at the relationship between God and humanity. Genesis chapter 1 talks about the relationship between God and humanity. It's on a kind of a more macro scale, so to speak. But Genesis 12 through Genesis 50, the the last 39 chapters, looks at specifically the nation of Israel. More specifically, the the Israel's ancestors. And we see, what we'll see when we get there eventually, is that Genesis 12 is a huge kind of like change or transition. God is, Moses writes down kind of the macro view, and then he just starts going kind of really focused on these people called, eventually called Israelites through or who it started in to the person of Abraham. Now, both sections have kind of roughly four sections, and I'll just kind of like put that up there for you. In Genesis 1 through 11, we have creation, we have fall, we have salvation, and then we also have what we might refer to as the nations or different people groups that existed, like that occurred at the Tower of Babel. And then Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 50, we have Abraham, who is the, you know, the, the first patriarch, Isaac, and then Jacob, whose name later became Israel. And then we have the 12 patriarchs, Jacob's sons. And what we see that ultimately Joseph and Judah are kind of the prominent people that are highlighted. Joseph being probably the most popular, getting the most commentary, and Judah being less popular, but we see he plays a crucial role in the rest of Bible, especially God's redemptive history as expressed through Jesus Christ. So let me just unpack those just very briefly, and I'm going to draw some specific application for us. In creation, God created everything. Right from the very beginning, we see that Moses establishes a a, a crucial, foundational 
biblical worldview understanding that God created everything. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Everybody's got an idea about something about everything, right? Everybody thinks they know about something about everything, much to do about nothing, basically. But the fact is, God, from the very beginning, says, I did it. So if there's any ambiguity, any kind of questions in your mind, God did it. And ultimately, what we see is that while there was chaos in the world, God ultimately brought about order out of that chaos. And what we see very quickly, especially by the time we get to chapter 2 of Genesis, is that God's plan to maintain that order was by creating this other creation, not the angels, not these other heavenly beings, but the human race. You see, these people that we refer to as the human race or mankind were created in the image of God, the only creation of God that is created in his image. And we see that human beings were created to work on behalf of God and to act as kind of governors for God, to govern with God in his creation. And so humans and God live together, and we might even refer to the Garden of Eden really as kind of the first temple, quote-unquote, right? The Garden of Eden can be considered the first temple, because in the ancient Near East, you need to understand, the temple is where human beings interacted with their God or gods. The temple is where it all took place. That's where all sacrifices, all worship, all those things all took place in the temple. The Garden of Eden was, in a sense, the first temple temple in which Adam and Eve interacted and coexisted with God. But then we get to something that happens very quickly in Genesis chapter 3. I'm not sure how quickly it was, but it seems quickly in our Bibles. In Genesis chapter 3, we see a divine evil is revealed through a serpent. And I'll bring way more attention to what the implications are about the serpent. Again, because us 21st century Western literalists Sometimes um, we need to understand really what the mind of a Hebrew listener would think of when that detail was presented on the pages of Scripture. But evil is revealed through a serpent. And the short version is, as you probably know the story, we see that Eve, the serpent deceives Eve and that perfect relationship with God that once existed is now severed and everything changes. And crazy things are happening, Right? And we'll go into all those crazy things that are happening, but things like the sons of God are having sexual relations with the, with the daughters of men, and there's this new offspring called the Nephilim, and they're giants in the land. And if you're wondering what, you know, when they went to the promised land, and Joshua sent in, sent in the 12 spies, and 10 came back and said, no thanks, let's, let's find another place to live. It's because they saw giants in the land. They were kind of a, a different breed of people. And so we'll unpack that in more detail when we get there. The point is, supernatural evil began to corrupt God's world. And even on top of that, human beings were also corrupting God's world. You see, how when after, Canaan, or after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, Cain and Abel, they, have, they have start having children. Cain kills Abel. And in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 through 6, we see things just get worse and worse and worse and worse. Things just do not look good whatsoever. 
But one detail we will always see reoccurring throughout Genesis, throughout Scripture, but especially in Genesis, that circles through is this. There's always a glimmer of hope. Bad things are happening. Evil is is advancing. And yet there's always this redemptive glimmer of hope that God is going to do something, that God has a plan. And he does have a plan. In fact, we see very quickly that he has a plan of judgment and salvation. Ultimately, he has to destroy evil, and so God destroys evil by sending a flood. It's kind of a global reset of sorts. And now the chaotic waters from Genesis 1-2 are back, and it destroys all the order that God created. But he saves one family, right? He saves Noah. And he saves his family because God values human life. And then a short time later, we get to the nations. We see that after Noah goes out, even though sin runs rampant very quickly once again, again, we'll talk about all those nuances later, but we see ultimately that the people begin to multiply and fill the earth, and they begin to have this idea, they want to build a tower for themselves because they want to build a name for themselves. We've got to notice another theme that continues to repeat itself over and over again throughout human history, throughout the pages of Scripture, and especially true of the first book of the Bible. And that is this. Everything that God does, He brings about a sense of order and peace and unity and coexistence. But another pattern is also equally true. Super, other supernatural beings and the human race tend to bring about dishonor and disunity and no peace and chaos. And this is what happens when, uh, even at the Tower of Babel. We see they want to make a name for themselves because, again, what is the, the root of sin? Yes, it is pride, but the root of sin is autonomy. The root of sin is saying, I want to call the shots. I want to be morally responsible. I want to decide what is right and what is wrong. I will decide. It's no longer God telling me what is true and not true. I will ultimately decide. That's the sin that was taking place at the Tower of Babel. It wasn't that they were trying to reach God. They were making a name for themselves. And God said, "Uh uh-uh, not on my watch. And so he separates everyone by confusing the language. And now we see that there are multiple languages that exist. And that later becomes multiple people groups that spread throughout all the world. Very quickly here, we get to Genesis 12, right? Genesis 12 is a huge transition. We have this macro view, Genesis 1 through 11. And then we get to Genesis 12. And God calls this person named Abram, who later becomes Abraham, right? Now, Abram was not a God-fearer. He was not someone who like, oh, I'm the only one like Noah who's serving the Lord. No, he, he, if you knew anything about his, we'll find out about his father Nimrod and everybody else, they're, not, they're coming from very pagan roots. And yet God in his sovereignty says, I'm choosing you, Abraham. I'm pulling you out. And through you, I'm going to make a great nation and all the world will be blessed through you. 
And so we see that ultimately it takes a long time for Abraham to reap the promises of God, right? He's like 99 years old when he finally has that promised child, which is a miracle in and of itself. His, his wife, Sarah, also having a child at a very late age, a miracle in and of itself. They wander through most of their life. He goes through a lot of testing, but ultimately passes those tests. And we see that from the very beginning, salvation is by faith. You see, salvation by faith didn't start with Jesus Christ. Salvation by faith started with our forefather, Abraham, from the very beginning. Well, Abraham has a promised child finally, right? His name is Isaac. Isaac lives in the promised land. He's very wealthy and he has two sons, Esau and Jacob, right? They get along so well. Not really. Esau is born first. He's the one who is kind of owed the inheritance. Guess what, though? Jacob is known as the deceiver, And he deceives his brother, and he deceives him and inherits his birthright. And we see that then he has to flee for his life because Esau, his brother, wants to kill him. And uh, he finally returns one day, and uh, his name is changed by God to Israel. Jacob has, or Israel, has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. And two in particular are Joseph and Judah. Joseph is actually not one of the patriarchs. But he is given, as I said before, the most commentary in Genesis because he is the one that God chooses to save his people from the famine that he knew would exist for many, many years. But Judah is the one who actually sold his brother into slavery, who made some profit off of it. He's not a good guy, but eventually he becomes a good guy. And we see God's redemptive grace in the life of Judah because you would look at him going, He's done. He's disqualified in my mind. And God's like, no, actually, I have a plan for Judah. And I'm going to use Judah. In fact, Jesus Christ comes through the line of Judah. So what are the themes? What are the takeaways? Because I know I didn't read any one passage of Scripture for us this morning. I'm giving us an overview, giving an overview of of Genesis that we're just beginning here. Um. I'm going through a lot of preliminary information. Some of you might be going, wow, that's really interesting. Some of you might be going, that's nice. Thanks, but no thanks. I don't know. It's important, I believe. I'll be uh, pointing back to it as it's relevant. But let let me just reflect on one key theme that I, that I want to use as a way of encouraging further reflection in your own life. You see, one of the themes that we see repeated over and over again as we journey through Genesis is this. Left to ourselves, humans continually rebel and bring disorder into the world. You know, some people have this idea that people are basically good and sometimes do bad things. The Bible says otherwise. The Bible says, no, left to ourselves, human beings do not function well. Adam and Eve, they had choice. And when they chose to rebel, every single human being on the face of the earth that was born since Adam and Eve was born with a fallen nature. A disposition to sin, a disposition to wander, a disposition to rebel. It's not something that we have to think about doing. It comes naturally for us. In fact, Adam and Eve were the only ones who truly had a free will. 
We have a free will. We make decisions every day in our life, but they're the only ones that did not have a fallen nature initially. But yet, we are all born fallen. Therefore, left to ourselves, humans continually rebel and bring disorder into the world. But here's the good news. As much as we screw things up, God continually intervenes by returning order out of chaos and rebellion. Humanity brings disorder, chaos, and rebellion, and God brings order, structure, and righteousness. Let me make it very personal for us this morning. If your life is full of chaos. Maybe you would define it as very disordered right now. Maybe full of hardship because of your own doing. Then can I just say to you, there's one solution. There's not many, there's one. And that solution is this. You must return back to God. If you want order and peace and rest for your soul, then you can turn to no other solution but to God himself. He's the only solution. He's the only one that brings about order in the context of chaos and disorder. You see, when we walk away from God... So, so often we think we, that we can sin and we can walk away and we can live life on our terms and think that there's no repercussions for that. But here's the deal, brothers and sisters. When we walk away from God, it will only result in one thing, disorder, chaos, and separation. Every time. But here's the promise of Scripture. When you and I return to God, then God promises And he is more than able to bring about order and peace and well-being for your life. And here's here's the eternal promise. From the very beginning, we are given a hope. From the very beginning, from Genesis 3 on, even actually from Genesis 1, 1 on, I'll get to that more next week, we see that Christ has been promised as a Redeemer, as the one who will bring hope, as the one who will bring peace, as the one who will bring everlasting peace, of which there will be no end. From the very beginning, we were given a hope and a promise that one will come and restore an eternal order to God's creation, a kind of a, a back-to-Eden-like experience, a back-to-Eden reality. Most of us have no idea even what that means. Most of us have an, we only, that's only a theoretical idea at best. But as we unpack Scripture and unpack even what Eden was like, it might whet our appetites for going, oh, I want to go back. I can't wait for the new heaven and the new earth. I can't wait for that prepared place that Jesus said he's promising to make for us. The question for us is, How in the world is God going to eradicate the evil that is presented on the first pages of Scripture? How in the world is God going to bring about lasting order in the pattern of constant chaos and disorder? 
Brothers and sisters, that is why we celebrate Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, thousands of years prior to his coming, was promised by God the Father, saying, I have a plan. I have a plan. The plan is, I'm going to send my son, and he will be the one who brings about eternal order and eternal peace with God Almighty. 